Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to another exciting episode. Joining me is Dr. Linda Shai, an assistant professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning at Cornell University. Linda has been on twice before, and it's always a treat to share her expertise with my listeners. Linda and I cover a lot of adaptation ground on this episode. We hear about her participation in the Manage Retreat Conference in New York in the spring and how that information is getting out or not getting out to those who need it. We also discuss climate refuges and what areas of the U.S. are likely to be receiving areas. Think North. She also shares some work she did with NOAA's NEST program, which stands for A Northeast Safe and Thriving for All, and how that can serve as a model for other regions of the U.S. on dealing with climate migrants. We also talked about property rights and how many of the land use models in the U.S., are just terribly designed for a future of adaptation. Also, a short bonus conversation, Amy Chester of Rebuild by Design comes on to discuss their tool, Atlas of Disaster. It's a report that highlights federal disaster declarations across the U.S. and how much per capita each state is getting in response. Some of the results will surprise and frustrate you. Okay, let's join Dr. Linda Shai. Hey, Adapters, welcome back. Today, I have an exciting episode. I'm talking with Dr. Linda Shai. Linda is an assistant professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning at Cornell University. Hi, Linda. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Doug. It's great to be back with you. All right. I think this is your third time on the podcast. I really enjoy our conversations. But for those who have not listened to your previous episodes, can you just give people a little bit of background on what you do there at Cornell? Yeah, at Cornell, I do a lot of research. I run the Adaptive Land Lab, and we look at how cities are adapting to climate change and the ways in which their adaptation efforts can lead to greater inequities. I'm in particular interested in issues of land governance, like our property taxes, our municipal governance, our regional governance, our insurance, and other land use planning issues that cause cities to behave the ways they do, and how we can change those underlying institutions to create the kinds of equitable and sustainable outcomes that we all want to see. Fantastic. And again, it's a pleasure. That's why I'm having you on again, because people that will come on on a regular basis, because it's a nice chance to follow up. And we're going to cover a lot of ground today. We're going to be jumping to different topics, but things I think that have been on your plate more recently. And I want to start off, there was a managed retreat conference recently in New York City. And I think this was the third or fourth version of this. And you attended, you presented. Can you just give us maybe that 30,000 foot view of what that was for people who aren't familiar with it? Sure. You know, maybe five even uh, years ago, when I started doing this research, people would say there's the forbidden R word. You can't talk about retreat, relocation, resettlement, any of those things. And I think what Colombia has tried to do is normalize that conversation because it's become increasingly clear that we don't have enough money to create protective infrastructure to make it safe for everyone to live where they are. And even if we did, that may not be the right solution in a lot of different places. So there's been a growing willingness out of necessity, if not desire, to think about what it would mean to relocate out of places that are in harm's way. And just the uh, still the issue of language is very contested, whether we say relocation, mobility of housing, 
people voluntarily moving, displacement, migration. But this conference is basically a gathering of all the folks working in these spaces from around the country and increasingly internationally who are sharing experiences with communities that have moved, policies and programs that currently support movement and the limitations and problems with those programs, some of the private sector actions that are happening, and how we can improve those efforts in that space. All right. So what did you present on? You know, we had a terrific showing from Cornell. I brought a team of probably a dozen different folks who are presenting a lot of students who have been on different kinds of projects. So we had work that we presented around the climate migration to the Northeast. We've had a project thinking through what it would take to make the Northeast actually a climate haven, the way that much of the media portrays the Northeast. We had a conversation that we organized with people. It was like a world cafe helping New York State. New York State just passed a huge bond Act that's been, I, I'm forgetting how many billions upon billions of dollars it was, but it dedicates hundreds of millions of dollars for a buyout program for the state to create one. So the question is, what should that look like? And what could New York learn from other states in order to do that well? We had students presenting work on the research we've been doing on cooperative housing in New York City and how it is that this kind of different land tenure st- approach is really difficult for existing programs to deal with. If instead of a single homeowner you're trying to relocate, you have a multifamily building where the owners all own that property together and have to make decisions together. What does that mean for them? And we had folks presenting on buyouts and how to integrate work on adaptation and the ecology and the housing buyout programs so that we are creating healthy communities that are closely linked rather than thinking about people and landscapes as very separate units. So we had a lot of stuff going on. It was really fun to be there. So we're going to get into the buyouts in a second here. And I just re- released an episode around buyouts. And so it's it's good timing around that. Okay, I've been to one of these. And I always look at the agenda. And I think there's just these amazing topics. It, they're really covering literally getting the weeds on some of these issues that come around managed retreat. What's your sense, though, that you were there? I wasn't on the planning committee or anything. But is it a bit academic? Is it designed to kind of get out there? Or is just the whole goal is just to share research? And we'll worry about those things later. There are a lot of academics there. It is kind of like a big family reunion of all the people that you read and you cite. But there are quite a lot of federal agencies, community representatives, tribal presence, nonprofits, private sector insurers, and companies were there as well. So it's a good mix of people who are all really interested in learning in this space. And I think it would be great for the bandwagon, I suppose, to get even bigger in future years. In some years in the past, like the first one had a really strong equity focus, and you could see there were a lot more communities and tribes that were present. I think this time there was a bit more push to get some private sector entities present. And I think both of those fronts probably could do with more because right now I think it has a lot of presence from people who are all in more or less in agreement that we need to move, that equity is a really big challenge and that we're not doing it super well within the government agencies and the legislative powers that we have right now. But the people who are really shifting the picture on the bigger scale, the private sector, which controls all the financial entities that impact housing, lending, insurance, and housing development, as well as the communities that are going to be affected. They are the ones who perhaps have the most disparate views and are the most impactful in different ways. And we need to do a better job of growing the conversation to those audiences. 
every adaptation conference struggles to get those corporate and private interests to it. And yeah, it's a huge growth area. So you just mentioned some people that you think more of them should be there, but any groups there that just surprised you that were in attendance? And I guess you were encouraged that they were there? Yeah, there's a lot of different smaller communities. And I'm, you know, there were reps from a, a whole bunch of different states, a few fewer numbers from tribes. And I think that it was great that they were there. A lot of government agencies and a growing number of them. And that was really awesome that they were there. I think the one presentation I heard that was like the most astonishing was from Climate Alpha, which is a private sector entity that does a lot of AI supported mapping they've compiled like 1500 data sets and they are assessing which are the places in the United States that are according to them going to be the most resilient and therefore profitable in terms of speculative investment and so they are a landing site for investors who want to know where to target their funds and they help them steer it to the kinds of portfolios that would be beneficial to them and so i think this kind of perspective is why it's so important to get more of the private sector voices there because this is absolutely logical from a business perspective. It's only going to increase more and it is completely delinked from the other kinds of conversations that we have at the conference around equity, community engagement, and social justice and environmental health and all of those other things. It can be extremely impactful and completely overwhelm the local level initiatives to create anti-displacement, affordable, and integrated welcoming communities. Is there any talk of moving? I know they do it there in New York at Columbia because there's a staff and it originated with them. But I think going to New Orleans, going to Charleston, going somewhere in Florida, I mean, the local media that could come around that. I mean, is there any chatter about maybe the next time doing somewhere different? That's so interesting. I'm not part of the organizing committees. It is a Columbia conference. So I think they have a lot of reasons to keep it there. But yeah, that's a really interesting thought to move it around the country and then to build that to make it more accessible for people who are located elsewhere. Oh, absolutely. Just getting to New York, it's expensive to get there, expensive to stay there. And so I think there's a lot of local governments that could cluster around in New Orleans or, uh, you know, Jacksonville or something like that. Anyway, just a thought if you guys are out there listening. Lynn, I want to pivot here a bit and talk about buyouts. And I don't know the timing of the research. I saw the paper and I think it came out in the fall of last year. But looking at buyout programs and kind of comparing federal and state programs and how I guess they need to integrate better. Can you? And I'm probably describing it poorly. Can you tell me a bit about that? Sure. We came out with a study and we looked at five subnational programs that have been touted as being the best around the country. So just as general framework, FEMA, as well as HUD and USDA are among the federal agencies that offer programs where the government will buy your house at a pre-disaster value. And then you move out of your house, they demolish the house. And in the case of FEMA, that site would then be left in perpetuity to nature. And so this is the kind of national framework for disaster mitigation so that they move people permanently out of harm's way, as well as reduce the costs for the federal government insuring and continually paying people to rebuild in places that are highly hazardous. And that program has been widely critiqued as being really problematic, really bureaucratic, takes on average five to six years for people to fully close on that deal. And it's very inequitable in terms of who has access. So we looked at five programs around the country that 
that people see as being some of the best of these programs. That was in Charlotte, Mecklenburg, North Carolina, New Jersey has a Blue Acres program, Washington's floodplains by design, Houston's flood control district, and Austin's watershed protection department. And so mostly after a disaster, you know, the federal government declares it's a federal disaster and that opens up congressional funding for the funds to flow. And at that point, it goes to a state and the state may have its own office for channeling these funds and using them and helping localities or cities and counties might put up their own programs for dealing with this inflow of funding and then helping to identify who's going to be getting a buyout, who would they who would relocate, how are they going to, you know, do this whole financial transaction, who's in charge of demolishing the house, where are they going to move to, helping the homeowner who might be in all sorts of distress figure out the paperwork and the bureaucratic process. So it's a um, that's the usual way that it goes around the country, but in the case of these five programs, they've all established long-standing permanent dedicated entities that just operate regardless of whether or not there's a federal disaster declaration. And usually they have another source of funding that supports their long-term programming. It might be a bond or some other sort of state commercial tax revenue or a local utility charge or property tax. So they are able to consistently run and that makes them be able to learn over time to not have to start from scratch each time and to evolve their programs to be more thoughtful, more inclusive in response to the challenges that they see on the ground. So we wanted to learn from them, see what they were doing and what they weren't doing and what lessons that might draw for the federal government. And I guess in in a nutshell, we'd say that these programs are indeed more equitable because they have seen who doesn't get to qualify for their programs and they have found ways to overcome that and to grow the like the inclusiveness of who can qualify and be eligible that because they have their own funding they are able to to do so in many cases they have established more relationships with other kinds of entities at the federal level around the different agencies locally and regionally with different partners and so they can do significantly more they are much more transparent they have much better programs and policies to support people in being able to access the funds. But it was also really interesting to see that most of them also are struggling the longer, the bigger arc of the picture, right? So what we really want to see is not just an equitable buyout program. We want to see a equitable process to how we think about floodplain development. And that's not something that these buyout programs really are asked to to respond to. So we're not talking about in a bio program why we're permitting development in the floodplains and who is going to be living in floodplains. We're not talking about how much housing and affordable housing is being constructed and therefore where buyout relocatees are going to be able to move to if they want to stay within the region. And so there is this major challenge because the funding is very narrow and it doesn't require or specify and there's no support for locality having that much more integrated perspective. So typically you do the buyout, the people leave, and then somebody's going to end up holding the property. And then maybe that's just going to be vacant, or maybe it'll be mowed, or maybe it'll be handed over to a land trust to deal with. And so you have people who are in sometimes they're safer, mostly they're safer, but they've just lost their community, their whole home and attachment and what it means to live in a particular place and be from someplace. And then you have the land that ends up being 
just basically derelict in some way because it's lost the people who would normally have cared for that space. So I think there's also ecologically speaking a lot to do in terms of connecting buyouts to a larger picture and having this plan for what do we want for this ecosystem, having that plan beforehand, helping people see that if they do choose to relocate, they're contributing to this really meaningful change in the landscape and allowing people to be part of the care and the management of that afterwards, that begins to create a much more integrated, healthy system. Boy, you're talking social engineering at such a large scale. It's like some political group's worst nightmare. Not that I'm against it. It just makes me think, wow, just having this top to bottom integrated approach. And you mentioned that some of the research, I'm sure we had the same people in North Carolina. I just, a recent episode that just came out, Tim Troutman from North Carolina. I don't know if you actually talked to him. Does that name ring a bell? No, we didn't interview him. No. He was great though. And he was talking about one of these local programs into the notion of the nimbleness. And they purposely, and I talked to someone from Virginia too, and they purposely avoided some of these federal funds because it just so hamstrung them to be responsive to the needs of the local community. And gosh, that's so problematic. And I think partly some of the things that we talked about is you looked at other federal programs, be it like infrastructure or DOT grants, that they, they need to make sure that when they're giving the money out, it goes out and it's done in a certain way, but they can get it out to local jurisdictions much more easily without as many strings attached. It seems like there would there are some federal models out there that th- these areas could focus on. I think you're right that the federal agencies need to do better to learn from each other. Even there is a urban, I think it's the urban URA is Urban Renewal Act or Urban Redevelopment Act. And it gives a model for how the government should give money for folks who experience eminent domain. And there's a higher standard there for what kinds of compensation they receive. And that's different from the buyout funding. So like buyouts is just the cost of your house. But a URA eminent domain process specifies that you, the government is also going to give you cover the cost of closing. It'll cover, you know, counseling. It'll cover the cost that you need to move to somewhere else. So, but I think compared to the model you're just saying, like a DOT, the DOT exists at the federal, state, and local office. Most local entities, whether it's a, a Department of Public Works or a Department of Transportation, they have one of those. So giving the money in that way isn't so hard. But when you're talking about demolishing housing, buying it out and turning it into a park, like that's not something most places have a terrible yeah. lot of experience with. And just who is supposed to have responsibility and just because you give it to them doesn't mean they have the skill set to do that. So we talk, you know, mostly these bio programs are housed in more engineering based programs like a Department of Public Works or flood control district, maybe an ecology department. And people there are trained in the natural sciences and engineering. And they were talking about how like you're calling households who are crying or their partner died and they have no idea where the papers are or like they are disabled or like all sorts of things. They have no training and preparation for dealing with that, much less some of the bigger political questions around equity and all of those things. So I think that's a a real challenge about the funding and why we need to be building a social institutional infrastructure for doing this work. It's just not about having a trillion dollars that you can push out. It's like, do we have the people on the ground who can make that money work in effective ways? I wasn't familiar with the eminent domain legislation that you referenced, and I they're going to have to dust that off. That, that will be put to use in the years ahead, especially in coastal areas. And just in the final note, this buyout, one of the people I also interviewed in the previous episode was a, a woman from Louisiana. And this was just a person who went through it herself, a homeowner. And it's just, it was amazing. It was just 
she talked about her hair falling out and just the frustration and stress. And she's actually now an ambassador to help other people do it, which is fantastic. But she would just little things that add up and make this miserable that she needed to stay in a hotel for a few nights before she kind of got between places. And like, that's a cost that some people just can't even absorb. And then because the federal program is buying out the whole house, they had to leave the furniture in there. So she couldn't even come in and kind of get exist. The furniture that's there that's going to be demolished and taken to the landfill had to leave it. And so little, well, that's not even a little thing, but things like that add up. And so I just imagine, I think of the managed retreat conference. I don't know if like social scientists were kind of digging at that level, but that handholding is going to be such a critical part of this, or it's just going to trip up really quickly. There's just going to be, people are not going to get it, go through this. Absolutely. And I think that there's, you know, we had a quite a number of buyout panels at this conference. And I think that after a while of sitting in these, you realize there's, you know, it, it's not that hard. All the research points to fairly shared, agreed things. And it's just being able to act with those kinds of humility and knowing, you know, the picture of what to do. So part of it is that the design of the programs right now, if you look at their goals and the mission is to reduce health and hazards risks for people, reduce their exposure, and also reduce the fiscal liabilities for the government through the National Flood Insurance Program. It's not about people. It's not about health and community well-being. So we don't track where people go. We don't track how they do. Um, we don't assess their experience. And so we don't really have that information. So researchers have been finding all sorts of innovative ways, like using credit data to find where people have moved or have gotten certain kinds of funding. But the government hasn't even been trying to learn necessarily from those experiences. And if you just talk to people like the, this woman that you're talking about interviewing, there's so much that you would learn from them. That, right. So I think that there's clearly a lot now of research anticipating that and a lot of efforts within FEMA to shore up and reform some of their equity and buyout policies. Yeah, I don't think I've ever done an interview with a podcast where there was better quotes from just a short conversation. I mean, just this is hell on earth. And it just it was amazing. And she just it's fantastic that she was able to kind of get through this and be a resource for other people. So excellent for her. And just before we wrap this up, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I want to kind of get a recommendation out here. I look at this and I look at these local programs that they're having some success with this is going to have to be done at scale, though. If you think about Louisiana, you think about Florida, I mean, this is going to have to be done at scale with these buyout programs. How do you even start your research, I think is probably just, oh, all right, here, you're kind of studying the underbelly of it all. But how should even a federal agency listening to this, how like thinking big, this is going to have to be done at scale? Absolutely. So getting back to my earlier point, this is where it's like, there is no, who's going to do this work? There is no entity right now that you could necessarily point to that wants to take that on or has that capacity. So for the federal agencies that are doing this investment, they're primarily investing in the actual projects, which is, you know, from a efficiency perspective, very good, right? You have very low transactions, overhead costs if you only invest in the actual work being done. But as a result, there is no capacity in institution building. So for instance, I think in our paper, we mentioned like BRIC funding in 2021, 4%, 3% of the funds went to capacity building and 80 
84 or 87% went towards project implementation. So I think that we have to be building the entities at the state level or perhaps at regional county or super county metropolitan levels in order to make that possible. There's 25,000 local governments in the United States and by far most of them are way too small to have the staff capacity to do this. And most of the buyouts that get implemented are in very small places. So to expect them to do this in ways that are going to be ecologically sustainable and socially responsive and really in tune to the specific needs of different kinds of households of all different kinds, it's just not realistic. And so that's one of the things now we're seeing some states putting forward the resources to develop state-level programs. New York, that as I mentioned, has been funded and legislated to do so, so they're working on that. I think Massachusetts is considering some legislation legislation on that front. And so they can be learning from the experiences of these other states and counties to see what they can do. We're going to pivot here, a big pivot here. And I want to talk about the NOAA Nest program and that's happening in the Northeast. What is that? So NOAA funds these, uh, has a climate adaptation partnerships program, which used to be the RISA program for many decades. And these are like multi-state regions where NOAA funds networks of collaborative partnerships to translate climate science into adaptation action. And so we received a planning grant to develop one for the upper Northeast region, stretching from Buffalo to Maine and excluding the metropolitan corridor from New York to Boston, which currently already has its own RISA CAP program called CC Run. So we recognize that there was a lot of ongoing work within this region around climate adaptation, but that one of the pieces that hadn't yet really been explored was around climate migration. So in tandem with, you know, for instance, Colombia having this conference now on managed retreat that's drawing lots of interest, you've seen a great deal more interest in the media being willing to talk about climate migration. And so quite frequently now, there's pieces in the news about climate migrants and refugees, whether they're fleeing California wildfires or they're buying farms in Vermont and raising goats or Duluth and Buffalo are often touted as being climate havens or climate refugees. And you also see mayors, whether it's the mayor of Orlando or the mayor of Buffalo saying like, yes, we are going to be havens for people that are moving. So we recognize that there was a lot of suggestions that the Northeast would be such a place. And ecologically speaking, Yes, it is going to be comparatively less impacted by climate change, or rather, it will still be more habitable for humans as opposed to much of the rest of the country and the world. But does that mean that this region is one that is able to host that many people or or is ready and willing to? And what is it going to take? So we had seven universities from across this region participate in this collaboration to do that kind of thinking through and to learn about the history of migration in this region. And what we learned is that there has always been so much coming and going into this region. Starting with indigenous times, people were traveling up and down these north-south rivers, following the flows of food at the seasons and migration patterns throughout the year. There was a genocide of indigenous peoples that caused populations to significantly decline, the inflow of colonial people, the inflows of French Quebecois, which engendered its own KKK backlash from the 
Protestants against this Catholic inflow of people who were speaking a foreign language, to African Americans who came, and then to the Rust Belt's period when deindustrialization led to the decline of so many of the cities and small mills and Rust Belt towns and cities in this time. So people have been coming and going, and there's no question that this region can allow for or can handle more people moving in from that kind of, I guess, physical perspective. But from a social and political and governance perspective, it's really not at all ready. And people were made very clear that already this region is not responding to core elements of what it takes to be a welcoming, adapted, inclusive place, which is affordable housing, adequate care, whether that's child care, elder care, or other other forms of care, uh, health care, and that a lot of that infrastructure was not there to support people who were already living there. And if we didn't address those kinds of needs, that we would only, that any kind of migration inwards, migration into the region, whether it's refugees who are international or lower income, or it's wealthier retirees, or it's yuppies and professionals, any of those migrations would cause local displacement and greater income inequality and therefore potentially xenophobia. So I think that we learned a lot out of this project and it made clear that there is a lot of appetite for regional collaboration on these issues and learning across multiple states changing and uh, revisiting some of the core governance questions around like how well can a place that is so rooted in localism and home rule and very small town governments, how can we build that capacity and at what scale to address some of these changes and maybe inviting in now we're going after some of these other grants to build from this work is to think about can there be a multi-state initiative the way that there is for the Reggie network which is a bunch of New England and mid-coast mid-Atlantic states collaborating on climate carbon trading, can there be such a network for resilience and adaptation thinking where we're sharing uh, and streamlining our policies so that if you came to work in Massachusetts, you could also work in Vermont with a psychiatry degree and not have to worry about that because each of our states are really small. How can we be welcoming in our tax policies, our housing policies, and create the ability for even people who can do decarbonization work in this region to afford a place to live and and on and on from there. So it's lots of interesting conversations and it's definitely shown that if you get a lot of disparate folks together, you can do really interesting things that opens and changes minds. That must have been fascinating to see some of the like previous migration pattern, even going back, you know, in, indigenous, just to see how they moved up and down that area. That, that must have been really fascinating. And it, explain to me here, though, that the Nest concept, maybe maybe you said it and I'm not, is the first one here in New England, is the goal to do it all over the place? And since this was sort of like a research or planning exercise, is it going to live on? I, I guess I didn't quite understand that. Is there, there a goal to create a <laughs> NOAA Nest indefinitely? Yes, please tell Noah to fund such an effort. Okay, okay. Noah is funded by Congress to create these CAP programs, and Congress has asked Noah to have them all over the country. Currently, it does not cover all of the country, but Congress has not delegated the funding for it to create CAPs all over the place. So it's an open question whether we would be able to, at some point, go after a Noah fund that would make it more permanent, or not permanent, but the the other fund 
funded areas, they are five-year programs, and then they can be renewed. And so some of these regions have had them for decades now. There are other programs, both out of NOAA and NSF and elsewhere, that do support some of this work. So we are going after some of those funds to grow it into a program that has longer legs and can do more of this work. Oh my goodness, I can't even imagine creating a nest in the Southeast and with Florida being involved. And you inevitably, you're going to have to be like, all right, we're going to be talking about how will we get people moving from the coast and getting the state of Florida to participate in, in such discussion. Oh, that's going to be tricky. That, that would be tricky. Well, I, I love the whole format of it. Is it a template? I mean, are you... You've shared, you shared a PowerPoint with me that I went through, but other regions, even if they're not rel- in NOAA, can they look at it and, and start soliciting interests on their own and maybe encouraging NOAA and their regions to do this? That's such an interesting idea. We hadn't thought about templating or franchising this particular model. Um, Come there on. Are- <laughs> I'm an academic, not a business person. There are other caps that do look at migration. So the Great Lakes Climate Adaptation Partnership is very much turning towards those kinds of efforts. And I think different regions will probably take different approaches based in part on the political willingness to engage with some of these issues. I think that right now we're going after one of the NOAA regional collaboration grants. And so these regional climate collaboratives were a topic of my dissertation. And the the most famous one is the Southeast Florida Compact, but lots of other places have them. California has a whole state coalition of all the collaboratives. I think a lot of these groups are willing to talk about the easier conversations, because when you have a big bandwagon, you default to the lowest common denominator, which sometimes is, you know, the information, the mapping, how can we share model practices and codes, do trainings, can we go after more funding that'll benefit all of us collectively. But the a lot of the constraints that you hear localities facing when you say, why aren't you but why are you still permitting development on the waterfront that your own maps tell you are within the current flood risk zone and certainly is going to be under flood risk with sea level rise? And you'll hear that they are really concerned about property taxes, about land use, about who's going to fund their services if they were to change. And if they gave up on it, it's just going to go to the next town over. So they better claim it first before somebody else does. Those are the kinds of challenges that I think this region has the ability to think about. It's We may be more progressive in that sense compared to some regions, but it is no less locally territorial. And so these issues are still very sensitive. But I think that's where like an academic and policy collaboration could open up the space to have the conversations that everybody knows has to be had, but nobody actually wants to touch it. It's like a politically dangerous space to go. Oh, there was a book, Tim Flannery, Australian author of The Future Eaters, and just that got termed as a think applies so much to people making these short-term decisions. And I totally understand it. Property taxes. We got to pay this year's property. And, but it's just like future eating. So yeah, some tough decision. Just kind of wrapping this up. I always hear you guys in the Northeast are thinking about this now. And I guess I haven't really even thought about the Northeast as a place to migrate to. The Midwest always gets the attention and that Duluth, you always hear about Duluth. Have you, have you heard much <laughs> about it? Like, and Jesse Keenan, our colleague, Jesse Keenan, he was involved with that, but I keep, I'm like, I'm not moving to Duluth, but I guess it has a lot of water, decent downtown and maybe jobs. But are there those really good models in communities that are actually already trying to attract climate migrants? 
It's so funny. I was just on a panel with ciders at this manager tree conference and somebody asked, where would you all move to? And she said, I would move to Duluth, but it's because she's actually from Duluth and not because it's been marketed that way. Um, I don't know, Doug, you live in some place that's been what over 110 degrees for the last month. Why aren't you thinking about moving to the Northeast? 109, 109. So okay, the winters just would kill me. I just can't. I mean, I left DC because they thought it was too cold and people say DC has mild winters. I'm, I'm originally from Florida. I can't deal with that. So it'd be nice in summer, but those winters would just crush me. So, yeah. I mean, I think that's right. Like everybody has very different tolerances. I wouldn't move to the Arctic circle. Now I wouldn't move to the the Sahara desert. People live in all of those places. Right. right? So it's not that there's any particular ecological thing that says this is the, the limit. And so it is really difficult to model and project at what point people would move. Right? You could say, oh, if you're permanently underwater, you're probably not going to be able to live there if right. you don't build a seawall or something. But at what point is it too much drought or too much heat or too much wildfires or too much wildfire smoke for you to want to move? And we don't really know. It's very hard to predict. And I think that's what makes it really difficult. But I think rather than trying to go down the modeling way, which a lot of people are indeed doing, you see a lot of private folks probably modeling this, is to say that there's a lot of agency, right, in terms of what we want to do and where we want to grow. We're not beholden just to the market. We can have visions as to where we want to have people live, you know. So when we built the interstate highway system, that was a a a spatial vision about where the country should grow and how. It led to a lot of sprawl. It led to a lot of infrastructure. So can we have this kind of vision that is actually supportive of adaptation at a larger scale that comes from the public sector and learns from all of the equity injustice, displacement, racism, and unsustainability of past years. I think it's rather dangerous, actually, to just say we really failed with urban renewal. And so we're going to give up any kind of large-scale effort. And so right now we have, for instance, all this money coming out of the federal government, but it's lacking in a spatial vision about where that infrastructure should go. Are we agnostic as to any place that needs it is going to get it? Do we want to steer it towards any particular place in order to make sure that we as a country would survive and be resilient in a more just and equitable way. Well, I want to add, you'd mentioned ciders. I'm just going to say it's Dr. A.R. Ciders at University of Delaware. She's been on the podcast before, but I just, I, I want to give her more detailed information if people are interested in kind of following up what she does. She's, she's fantastic. I'm going to do another pivot here, Linda, and I want to talk about some of the classwork that you teach. And I think you teach a class on private property and how that fits in all this. Is that right? And what, what's that about? It's a seminar. I just started it this year. It's called Land, Property, and Socioecological Repair. And it was a great way to just explore some of the literatures that we've been wanting to read around land. Because I think we talk a lot about things that are happening on land, but we don't actually talk about land itself. So for instance, we'll talk about land use and the challenges of managing buyouts and retreat, But we don't talk about property rights and the broader conceptions behind property rights that give rise to all of the property laws that we have. So this was a class that explored what are the different, you know, it's not, I think in the US, we have this very 
ingrained sense of what private property is or a property system. It's kind of God-given. It's forever. It's in perpetuity. No one can take it from you. We don't want government to regulate, you know, and that's one particular system of property and property itself sits within broader conceptions of land and society, land relations. So some cultures wouldn't even call what they do property rights regimes or property rights laws. It's a conception of the relationships that binds people to other people and people to the places that they live. So this class explored the different kinds of ideologies and philosophies of land and property, land relations, and what it does and does not do, how each of those kinds of regimes is able to adapt to ecological change, and what are some of the possibilities of what we might do to play and interrogate our own system rather than treating it as a kind of fixed thing, right? I think we are willing to entertain and design competitions like we're all going to, Back Bay of Boston is going to turn into Venice and we're all going to be living in houseboats or maybe we'll all move to Duluth and live in bubbles. You know, we entertain really utopian physical architectural changes and we're willing to to have those debates, but we aren't willing to consider whether our governance systems would still be the same given the drastic amount of climate change that's going to impact all of us. And all of our governance systems were developed in a period of climate stationarity, and that's not the case anymore. So how is that going to affect land governance and property which underlies all the other overlaying pieces of legislation, wealth accumulation, and infrastructure that we have. That sounds like a fascinating class, and I would love to have taken it. I think Americans have such, and I'm generalizing here, but an unhealthy relationship with their private property. It's almost like an extension of their body and I own my own home, but I, it's not finished being paid. I just don't even look at it being my property. There's so many ways that it's still not mine and I can't put a new plant here or anything like that. But some people have such their identities wrapped up with their immediate property and it makes it so difficult to just, I guess, run a broader community. So do you have a sense that what you did in the class, do you talk about things like what property rights model, and there's tons around the world, would lend itself better to climate adaptation? Did that kind of come up? That is like our research ambition to answer that question. And so we do have this broader project, collaborators like Zach Lamb and Rob Olshansky. We have this project that we've named Governing Land and Adaptation on a Dynamic Earth, which stands for GLADE, Creating Space in the Forest for Having This Conversation. I don't think that we have the information to answer that question right? Like, even if we were flexible, and we could all become X, is there an X model that is ideal? And I think it may be impossible in some ways to answer that question, because climate change is going to really strain all of the different systems out there. So of the kinds of emerging literatures that we see, for instance, historically in the Pacific Islands, they have customary and communal land tenures. Like the whole island, if you belong to a certain tribal group, you all have access to land. When you need land, you're given a piece of land on the island and it's shared. And those extend across the lineages, across different islands. But now given the numbers of people who need to migrate, that's coming under tension. And it's been also under tension because of overlaying colonial British or other kinds of 
property systems that are trying to privatize certain models. And so when they come into tension, certain ones get erased, right? I don't know that it, it would say like if we went towards a more indigenous model that it would solve all of the problems that we have. But I think that one is that it's beyond the kind of particular model of the mechanics, right? There, there's nothing to say that our existing property rights system couldn't encompass a lot of people having communal land tenure or transferring that through kinship relations or doing all sorts of interesting things. Like it can be expansive in that way, but there isn't often like a supportive infrastructure. Like if you were living in a co-op, try going to get a loan or an insurance policy, you're going to discover that that's not so supported. But beyond that is the kind of ideology about what is property for and the underlying purpose of land and our relationship to land, as you noted, Doug, is really different. And so even if the mechanics change, but the mindset does not, then it may result in the same outcome regardless. I think what we would say is that, you know, even though the US, you think we have this kind of really universal single model, even within our country, we have lots of different models. So on tribal land, land is typically still held communally, like the whole tribe owns that land together. You can't necessarily just sell it or transfer it. You have use rights to property, but it is for the current and future generations as a whole. You have about a quarter of Americans live in some kind of cooperative system, mostly in homeowners associations, but also in condos and co-ops and community land trusts that require some element of joint funding and decision-making. You have the co-ops and the CLTs, the community land trusts, as well as a lot of mobile home parks are cooperatively owned. So there's a variety of ownership models that already exist that are not recognized, that are not supported by policy. For instance, the Stafford Act, which is for disaster funding in this country, explicitly says it cannot support the communal parts of cooperative and condo housing. So if you have a building that's a condo, the Disaster Act would give federal funding to help you restore your unit, but it wouldn't fix the broiler, the parking, the lobby, the elevator, etc. So how do we begin to support and recognize, accommodate the plurality of visions of property that currently exist before we even begin to say like the dominant kind should all change to the cooperative kind of some kind? I, again, I just think the U.S. is uniquely designed not to do well in this because our uh, uh, infatuation with property rights is so unhealthy. And I think urban areas obviously much different. You're living in condos and apartments and all that. But here's a case study for the next time you have this class. I, I moved west five years ago. I'm in Arizona. I kind of know this. If you know, like there's tons of federal land out here. And of course, that's your land as much as it is my land, even though I live here. And you have cattle grazers. And so they graze their cattle on this land at a reduced fee. It's high subsidized. And so you have these conversations out here about, oh, well, maybe they should pay fair market value. And this notion of even ownership of this federal land, people will say like with a straight fit, well, my family's been ranching for five generations. And somehow that that gives them more say into the property than let's say you living in New York. And it's very frustrating. And it's, it's, it's almost de facto taking ownership of federal land that is just as much as someone from Manhattan. It is theirs. And so it's very unhealthy. And anyway, I encourage you because it's, it's a really intractable issue here. And those people tend to ignore, well, for a thousand generations, the local indigenous population were living there. So we don't look at it that way. I'm venting right now, but it's it's been kind of the water laws out here and just the management of the land is just 
dumbfounding that these we tiptoe around these people. Absolutely. I think the key challenge here is how do we begin to open the spaces where we are able to entertain really difficult conversations? And we really aren't there yet, but those difficult conversations are absolutely all bubbling there. And then we only have them in the form of conflict. And so I think some of these collaborative efforts, what they're trying to do is to create a space where you can have joint learning options between people who are really different and perhaps opposed in their perspectives so that you could possibly address it. Because if you don't include it in the front end, you're going to run into the opposition when you try to implement anything. And I think that I really do believe like this, there's a lot of doom and gloom out there, but there's a lot of land. There's a lot of water. There's a lot of space and bright minds out there. We can survive. I mean, I'm not going to go totally off the deep end, but like there is enough space for all of us. It's just a question of can we manage to organize ourselves in a way that's going to make space available to everybody. Oh, and I'm convinced if we use the space more effectively and more intelligently, we'll actually be happier as a society, you know? And so we just, we, we need to get there. So, all right. I got one last pivot for you before we wrap this conversation up. And it's always, this is, these are wonderful conversations with you. I want to just do a check-in your area of climate equity and climate justice. And since you were last on, I had a conversation with Dr. Eric Chu at University of California, Davis, fantastic conversation. And just the notion of climate equity and how it's making its way out there. And you brought it up a lot today with plants. Can we just do like a, a, a gut check on it? What's your sense of it? Because I mean, I have my own opinions and I just went to the California Adaptation Forum and well, where are we at? And I know that's very a broad question, but obviously it's something that we want integrated in all this adaptation planning that we're doing. But sometimes maybe even how it's communicated, how it gets out there isn't always as, as effective as it can be. Yeah, no, I'm glad that you had Eric on. He is my, what, what would you say, my academic older brother. Um, he <laughs> was a dissertation student with the same advisor right before me. So lots of props and respect to Eric. I think it's fantastic that equity has become part of the conversation. And I don't take that for granted. So we've been doing this research also in China, trying to compare Shanghai and New York's adaptation efforts. And you don't hear the word equity or fairness really at all there. And you end up with projects like the big push there has been the Sponge Cities project. And all of the pilot projects have been in either new areas or more wealthy, well-off suburban new developments. And none of them were in the centers of urban poverty with a lot of either elder people living in older housing or migrant workers who are living in similar neighborhoods, right? So I don't take it for granted that now we have equity so much front and center that we have Biden's Justice 40 initiative and that all the cities know they have to talk that talk and the dollars in terms of I mean, who knows how the Justice 40 metrics are going to be implemented, but in terms of lip service, at least the intention and now some of the funding is going to prioritize lower income, historically, structurally disadvantaged communities. But I think that in having the language become so widespread, and it's part of something that we all know we're supposed to say, it hasn't necessarily translated to a similar awareness as to the structural causes of the inequality in the first place. And I know that lots of researchers look at 
racism and other kinds of aspects, my area being land governance, I focus a lot on what are the implications of this of land governance for inequality. So we could debate, you know, for instance, giving communities more of a stake or a voice in participation and talking about adaptation planning in localities. That's a really different thing than saying like, why do we have all the poor people in this metro region living in this city in the first place? Oh, it's because of our municipal incorporation rules that allowed Brookline and others, you know, the suburbs to incorporate and to change their zoning rules so that they could make them economically, initially racially, and then later economically zoned so that no lower income person could afford there, right? My colleague, Sarah Bronin, by mapping all of the zoning in the state of Connecticut showed that like less than 1% of all residential land in the state of Connecticut permitted as of right multifamily housing. So there are really underlying drivers as to why cities behave the way they do. And there's a lot that can be done with changing how people think, what they're saying, and how they prioritize. But then there are also underlying limits that constrain what they can do because of the way that we have drawn and shaped our land policies. So another one, because we're talking about cooperative property here, is that any a, a lot of the concern is around displacement. But any research, the clearest research of what is the best way to avoid poor people getting displaced from gentrification is that they hold the land cooperatively. And this is true around the world. If you hold it as a group, you take a very, a person with limited political and financial power and you make them more powerful. And when they own the land, they have much stronger rights as a whole than they would individually, right? So that's not something that we allow for and support in many different places. So I would just say that even as we're saying we want to prioritize spending in different areas, include these topics and grow the participation, that we translate those conversations into attention towards the underlying structural rules and institutions. You know, I'll probably get myself into trouble, but as you just described, the sort of really burying it deep, it needs to be part of all these planning processes and things that you just take for granted. But there's, it just seems, and this is what Eric and I sort of talked about, there's this sort of superficial rhetoric quality out there about it. Everyone has to say the right things to each other. And the National Adaptation Forum, which is obviously a great event, I mean, I think a full third of the agenda was like climate justice, climate equity focused. And I sort of thought to myself, if you could just pull a cluster of people that are probably as sensitive and aware of this issue on the planet than the people at this conference, and yet we're still giving each other presentations on these kind of things, really bearing deep into that kind of rhetoric. And okay, <laughs> I'm probably getting in trouble for that. And so I, there's this sort of, is that helping us get where we want to go on these issues when it almost becomes this, that there's more, I guess that I'm saying more effort into the talking points around it. I think you'd also want to look at who is speaking that rhetoric. And I would say perhaps the people that most need to change because they are most not on board and their their work is most critical, they are often not changing that rhetoric, right? Right, it's, right, right. So for instance, similarly, I just ran a special issue in the Journal of Planning Literature with uh, Dr. Joan Fitzgerald on planning for climate transformations. And we received like a record number for that journal, like 65 abstracts. And easily a quarter to a third of them were focused on equity, fairness, justice, social vulnerability. And then there were like one or two articles on transportation, infrastructure, law, finance. And it's like, oh yeah, all of those people or all of those sectors that actually build and fund and operate the urban system, 
they are not being attended to. So if that's the case, and we're not actually embedding the equity and justice discourse in those fundamentally traditional and often more conservative entities. And so they are going to be moving in a very different direction. I agree. And of course, you have to have sort of clever or we are in an age of even saying things will be provocative. Doesn't mean people don't want to do those kind of things, but they're just going to have to be needs to be, I guess, more stealth ways to get climate equity into these planning processes that just will allow you to move forward on these things. And um, right now, I just think a lot of the people that are very supportive of it, we're just talking to each other and just to each other. So absolutely. Well, all right. I'm sure I'll have a little feedback from that from the listeners. <laughs> okay. All right. We're going to wrap this up, Linda. And how I end every episode, if you could recommend one guest to come on the podcast, who would it be? I Every time you ask this, and I never... You ask all my favorite people already, so I'm trying to think of. <laughs> well, was there anyone um, that managed retreat that just were rock star that you're like, wow, this and maybe I haven't. Okay, I'll, I'll give you two, and then you can decide which one you want to to share on the air. I think it would be great for you to invite Dr. Zachary Lamb onto the show. He's been doing a lot of interesting work with mobile home parks and design strategies, as well as property strategies for increasing resiliency of that set of housing. More mobile home parks account for more affordable housing in this country than all other forms of government subsidized affordable housing combined. So it's a really important space and it'd be great for you to talk with him. He's also just coming out with a edited volume on resilient city and resilient cities and housing. He has a lot of focus on the design perspective. So that would be great. And I think that probably most people on your show tend to be quite ideologically aligned. Um, so I'll put forward. Really? <laughs> that's why I love it, right? But I, I'd suggest having somebody from Climate Alpha come on the show and really interrogating them and having that conversation about what is the private sector doing in this space and what do they think about equity and justice and all these other issues and how are they getting the private sector to pay attention to them? I don't use that word enough, interrogate. I need to use that in the context of the podcast more. That's <laughs> fabulous. I gotta be like, An interrogation. Right. Come on, America Daps for the ultimate adaptation interrogation. That's fabulous. I like it. Okay, two fabulous. And maybe I'll follow up with, do, do you know someone from, oh, do you know um, Dr. Lamb and the someone from? Yeah, Zach is another collaborator and friend. So I'm happy to recommend him. And I can give you the name of the person who spoke on Climate Alpha at the Managed Retreat Conference. Okay, great. Linda is always a treat. This lived up to what I wanted. So fantastic. We jumped around, but you are doing a lot of really cool work. And my listeners have loved your episodes. They're still downloaded frequently. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Doug. Take care. Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Amy Chester, Managing Director of Rebuild by Design. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we're going to talk about a specific tool that you guys have developed. But first off, what do you do there and what is Rebuild by Design? Rebuild by Design is an organization that's housed at NYU's Institute for Public Knowledge. We were started by the federal government after Hurricane Sandy as a way for communities and experts and local governments to come together and plan and implement large-scale infrastructure to address climate change. Fantastic. And so you, how long you've been there? And I think you have an anniversary coming up, right? We do. Actually, just this summer in August is our 10th anniversary, which we'll be celebrating in September. But it's kind of hard to believe 
this world of, well, what began as post-disaster resilience is now pre-disaster resilience has really changed a lot in 10 years. And even it's sort of that's congratulations on the 10 years, but in its own way, it's almost kind of like a bittersweet anniversary too, because you guys were created based on something that happened, right? Most of our work is actually focused on the future. We're always thinking about how communities can build and create policies and infrastructure so that they don't withstand the suffering that comes after an event. Great point. All right, let's talk about the tool that, you, that you're coming on here. And I'm going to have links in my show notes that'll give more information about what you guys do because there's a bunch of things that you're doing. But we're here to talk about the Atlas of Disaster, which is a great name, by the way. What is it? <laughs> Thank you. It's a report that we put out last fall. And it's actually a monster report. It's 670 pages. It has over 300 maps. And there's many different chapters of the report. But the heart of it is sharing the data on a county level for all counties in the entire U.S. So communities can understand what they have been living through in recent disasters. So the reason why we created this report, it comes directly from work that we did in New York State, where we, I should say, it's our home state. We're located in New York City. And what we did is we mapped with a very simple map. We wanted to understand what had happened in New York State in terms of flooding. We did this work in 2019, and we were able to map every disaster, state disaster and federal disaster for flooding in 2019. And we found that every single county in New York State had had a disaster and that it was urban and rural and Republican and Democrat and upstate and downstate and coastal and riverine and Great Lakes. And we took that very simple map to the governor's office and said, we want to work with you on creating a infrastructure fund that can support climate infrastructure. And out of that came the New York State Environmental Bond Act that was voted on last year and passed by New York State voters. So with that experience and understanding what kind of work did New York We wanted to take that to other states. So we expanded a partnership that we had with Aptum Engineering and iParametrics. And we work with them since they were both FEMA contractors. They had access to the data that was much easier to analyze in the way that they had it versus going on FEMA's website. And we spent about a year and a half and ultimately came out with the Atlas of Disaster that, as I mentioned, has these county level information. So every state has a packet that you can download. And it also has information about heat and why heat waves are not considered federal disaster declarations. Same thing with drought. It has an analysis of a cost of inaction. It has a step-by-step guide for how states can create collaborative programs and offers new financing tools and talks about adapting cost-benefit reform. So we're not just creating infrastructure that will have the biggest financial payback, but we're actually doing it so we will have the biggest social payback and help the most vulnerable first. So what I found really interesting is what I immediately did is start comparing states and you can go look at the states. Okay, who has had the most disaster declarations? And then what I think is really interesting and you've associated like funding to help with those disaster declarations and please clear up if I'm not getting that exactly right. And so you can kind of compare and contrast, oh, wow, this state gets hit by a lot and they're spending a lot of money. I mean, that's how I read it, right? 
And that's the federal government spending money. So that is all of our tax dollars. We weren't able to get our hands on a number of different data sets. One is the state disasters. So what we present is just federal disasters. And the other one is a a lot of money that comes after an event, either from the state, from private insurance, from loans. And we weren't able to capture that. But even so, we were able to rank disaster occurrences and you explained it perfectly. And we have the 50 states in a row, according to the states with the highest disasters and the states with the lowest disasters. And what we found is that California has the highest disaster, maybe not such a surprise to your listeners, but was a big surprise to us was that Mississippi, Oklahoma, Iowa, Tennessee, Louisiana, and Alabama are the next tranche of states. And maybe we would expect that maybe of Louisiana and, of course, of California, as I mentioned before, but we didn't expect that from Mississippi, Oklahoma, Iowa. These are states that have experienced more than 20 disasters between 2011 and 2021, and it's not really in our news. Nobody is talking about it. The other thing that we found was that, for instance, Nevada is on the bottom. They only had three federal disaster declarations during that time. And what's interesting about that is that we knew that they had the highest heat deaths. So we wanted to understand more about how our federal government considers a heat disaster. And what we learned is that they have never given a federal disaster declaration for heat. And the reason is because the way that our government works is that if a state cannot respond to a disaster itself, it then calls the federal government and says, can you help us respond? And they have to show that they have had economic loss. But heat waves have social loss. It has high mortality and mortality doesn't have a value that is, that is a dollar value. So what ends up happening is that those states that have high heat wave occurrences and high deaths because of those heat waves don't get any of that post disaster funding, which is so crucial to build back and to build forward. And so I remember when we were talking before we did this recording, I was sort of bragging about Arizona because I think we were like 49 or 52 and we had so few declarations and you reminded me it's because of the heat issue and we should probably have a lot more and have a lot more funding coming to the state. So it's a great point. And you just extreme heat is just the number one killer in regards to these climate impacts. And yet it's falling through this giant crack, which you have definitely pointed out here. And that's absolutely true. But I do think that there is a new understanding of heat effects because of the summer. And we just heard it was the hottest summer on record. I think it was Arizona, and please correct this if it's wrong, that had, I think it was the most days over 100 degrees. It broke every single record this summer. So we as Americans, Europeans, Middle East, all around the world are now experiencing extraordinarily high heat days. And that's just the beginning because this is going to get worse and worse. Yes, I'm in Tucson and we had the worst July on record for heat. And Phoenix, what you probably heard was Phoenix too, is that they went like 31 consecutive days over 110, which was a record. We're used to to heat here, but oh, it's been miserable. And what's really terrible is that our monsoon season has been almost invisible, which that usually cools us down. And we're all very bitter here in Tucson because we can't go swimming in the creeks or anything. (laughs) But I digress. Okay. So we have the Atlas and I just, I, I can't recommend enough just kind of poking through the the maps. It's really beautiful. It's really easy to maneuver through it. I mean, you said it's a large report, but I think the bulk of it is just kind of going through the states and all the information for individual states, but who should use this? Everyone should use this for sure. And one of the things that we're beginning to do now, and we've done it with New York and we've done it with Vermont, and we'll, we will get to all the states, is we're taking the same information in the Atlas of Disaster 
And we're creating new packets of information for localities and for folks that are in the States to use. So we're kind of repackaging the same apps that we had because they're so accessible. We're adding different images. We're adding stats. And what's my personal favorite, because I have a background in government and politics, is we're adding new maps that show disaster declaration occurrences, like the red maps that you'll see in our report. And then we're overlaying assembly districts, Senate districts, and congressional districts. That's great information if you're an elected official and you want to understand who else is suffering like your constituents. But it's an even better tool if you are an advocate and you want to understand what elected officials should you be holding accountable. There's all this content that if you're a particular state, your local government, state government, they can find information related to where they live. But you also have a series of recommendations and you can't go through them all here. But is there just a couple that you could share that because going through all this, I mean, you've sort of alluded to some recommendations here, but are there some, a couple other ones you want to share? Absolutely. One of the big things that we are proposing is that states set up their own funding sources so that they can support resilient infrastructure. And they can also use it as a local match, which means they're able to use those dollars to draw down additional dollars from the federal government from the infrastructure bill. And one of the ways that we're suggesting this could be supported is through a 2% surcharge on certain types of property and casualty insurance. So if you take property and casualty insurance, which is like your apartment insurance, your car insurance, for instance, maybe your boat insurance, and you back out medical malpractice and workers' comp, and you take 2% of that, and then you go through this you know, municipal finance and you bond it, you could raise an enormous amount of dollars. There are six states that can raise more than $10 billion in 10 years, which is a lot. So the state that I'm in, $19 billion. And that would only charge each policyholder $2 a month. But $19 billion for resilient infrastructure is an amazing investment that will, in the end, lower all of our insurance. So we really think of this as like a policy connection and a really great way that we can raise a bunch of money. And if every single state did it, we would raise $287 billion through this proposal. If people want to learn more about this, what should they do? And let's say someone wants to reach out to you. Are you partnering with folks in regards to this atlas? We absolutely are. We're partnering with local organizations all around the state to create these packets that I mentioned before. And we have lots of different partnerships on collaborative processes to uncover different policy issues and infrastructure design related to climate adaptation. So you can reach out to our info account, info at rebuildbydesign.org. You will definitely get a response. And you can check out our work at rebuildbydesign.org. And on the very first page is our Atlas of Disaster. Okay, Amy, thank you so much. This is a great resource. I'm going to have links in my show notes for this page. And as Amy said, reach out to them if you want to learn more. I am very interested in this because disaster preparedness and all these things with funding. I mean, there's a lot of money coming into the system and we need more tools for helping people get their heads around this. But Amy, thanks for what you're doing and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Linda and Amy for coming on the podcast. It's always a treat to have Linda on. If you haven't caught her previous appearances, I've got links to those episodes in the show notes. Linda is obviously in the thick of important adaptation research. I've covered buyout programs recently, and Linda is a leading expert in that area. I also think we need more case studies like the NOAA Nest program. People need to get together informally and talk these things out. 
It's still early and just getting people in a room together to have these complex discussions will offer a pathway for much harder conversations in the future. Noah, if you're listening, hopefully you guys are planning to work in other regions of the country and use the New England nest as a model for that work. And I especially loved our discussion around property rights. After moving out West, my interest has only increased. We need to rediscover what federal ownership of land means. Of course, you need to consider local interests in the management of these lands. But as I said earlier, someone from New York has just as much ownership as someone living near these federal lands. And for too long, we've had to tiptoe around these private users of the land. I hope as our public lands become increasingly important for adaptation, that will mean having difficult discussions around what are the appropriate uses of these lands. Getting massive discounts to cattle graze on public land should be a starting point in the adaptation discussion. I can't stop lecturing on this issue because in a previous professional life, I worked on land use issues and it's filled with contradictions. Let's change that. Okay, thanks again to Linda for coming on, and thanks to Amy Chester from Rebuild by Design for sharing their tool, Atlas of Disaster. Links are in my show notes. Check it out. Okay, so I don't do this for every episode, but it's something you'll hear from me more in the coming months. As many of you may not be familiar with the -the behind-the-scenes efforts required to produce and sustain America Adapts, I'm making a pitch for your financial support. America Adapts is a small nonprofit organization centered around the podcast, and while I do receive sponsorship for specific episodes... I also rely on individual donations. Many thanks to recent donors who have given a recurring donation, which is definitely a great way to do it. These donations are tax deductible since we are designated a 501c3 organization through the Social Good Fund. And I deeply appreciate my existing donors. People have shared how they've binged on episodes to grasp the essentials of climate adaptation. So in addition to the professional value received, please consider donating to help raise awareness about adaptation. We are all passionate about this issue, and I created the podcast precisely because I wanted to communicate the importance of adaptation. The podcast reaches influential individuals worldwide, and by supporting it, you become part of that valuable contribution. If we can spend money on $5 lattes without hesitation, please think about making a recurring donation of a similar amount or more to support America Adapts. I rely on episode sponsorships and support from individual donors. I've heard that people have changed careers and approached adaptation differently because of all the remarkable experts that have been featured on the show over the years. There's simply no other platform where thousands of adaptation professionals can gather and learn like they do on America Adapts. This podcast is my passion, just as adaptation is, and together, let's keep making a difference. We all know that climate adaptation will become increasingly important in the years to come, and the stories we can tell are limitless. So I invite you to join our community of changemakers and help change the future of climate adaptation by supporting the podcast and sharing these stories. If you can donate, there's a link in the show notes or visit americadapts.org. Thank you. And besides directly supporting the podcast, consider sponsoring a whole episode. Imagine the potential of showcasing your achievement through a widely acclaimed podcast that boasts a large network of climate and adaptation professionals. And yes, I am talking about America Adapts and how it offers your company or organization the perfect platform to tell your adaptation story and spread your message to diverse and highly influential audience of climate professionals. By sponsoring a whole episode, you not only have the chance to share your story with the world, but also integrate a podcast episode into your organization or company's long-term communication strategy. It's time to expand beyond the confines of webinars and white papers, which quite honestly can be quite dry and forgettable. We would work closely together to identify the 
the experts who best represent the remarkable work of your organization, and we will tell it through podcast storytelling. This will not only enable effective communication with your members, board members, and funders, but also leave a lasting impact. The value of podcasts lies in their ability to continue promoting your story long after their initial release, ensuring it remains a critical educational resource for years to come. I am humbled to have collaborated with prestigious partners such as Patel, NRDC, UPenn Wharton, World Wildlife Fund, UCLA, Harvard University, NRDC, the Trustees of Reservations, and others. Let's add your organization or company to that list. Yes, we can make a significant difference in the world of climate change adaptation. To learn more about this, visit americadaps.org or email me at americadaps at gmail.com. As we wrap this up, I'm always eager to connect with my listeners and hear their feedback on the show. Whether you want to share your thoughts or suggest a guest you'd like to hear from, I'm open to it all. Your input not only helps me improve the show, but it also can lead to exciting new opportunities. I've made many professional colleagues who have reached out to me. So please don't hesitate to get in touch at americadaps at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.